0: Welcome back to another episode of Digital Business Models Podcast by 4 Week MBA. In this session, I'm going to interview Eric Berger, who is the founder and editor of Space City Weather, and is actually been senior space editor of Ars Technica since 2015. But most importantly, he is the author of a great book called Liftoff. Elon Musk and the desperate early days that launched SpaceX this is the story of SpaceX in the first decade of its life and now it managed to go from a company that never had built a rocket to becoming the main player in the rocket and the space travel industry let's get to it Eric, thanks for joining this uh, conversation. It's a pleasure to, to have you in this session.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And as I explained in the intro, uh, you wrote an incredible book called the Liftoff, which is the story of uh, uh, SpaceX uh, in the first uh, years, in the first 10 years of uh, its life. And now it actually managed to to uh, disrupt the whole uh, uh, space um, uh, travel industry. We'll see, we'll see how. But um, let's, get, uh, let's get started from you. How did you actually uh, you know, um, get to uh, cover uh, SpaceX? Uh, you know what, what was the background that made you actually uh, write the, the book in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been covering space for a long time. I'm based in Houston, Texas, where Johnson Space Center is located. And so space is a big part of the fabric of the community here. Um, it became clear to me about a decade ago that the real future of spaceflight, at least in the United States, was in the private sector. Um, it was at that point that SpaceX was just starting to take off. Um, and then they've had really tremendous success over about the last five years you know, with all the rockets they've launched, putting humans into orbit and, and demonstrating reuse. And so it was back in about 2018 that I realized that SpaceX would not just sort of a really interesting company, they were really transforming the industry and continue to do so. And I wanted to understand why they had been successful. And so I was wondering, you know, is this because of Elon Musk or did he just get lucky? Is he really as involved as he says he is? Um, And so it was sort of with the goal of answering those questions that I embarked upon the project of, of really understanding the beginnings of SpaceX
0: yeah interesting and for a little bit of context to the audience because in this series we uh, I also had an interview with uh, with the author of uh, the founders which is a book about uh, paypal and uh you know it's a very interesting connection because actually when uh, elon musk uh, used the, fu- the the funding uh, for for spacex was actually the money that elon musk managed to uh, to uh, get from uh, an exit uh, from from paypal it was like around 2002 when paypal was acquired by by ebay and that was what uh, gave him actually the, the money to to get started with SpaceX. And the interesting note is also that uh, just, uh, you know, uh one or a couple of years before um, Musk had been hosted uh, from, from the company because he had been like the CEO of the company. And then there was a sort of uh, uh, interesting story behind it because Thiel, uh, 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 Max Levitchin and, uh, and uh, um, uh, David Sachs uh, organized, let's say, a uh, hosting of Musk uh, from, uh, from uh, PayPal. And there is a whole story behind it, which is very interesting. And we cover in the other episode, but uh, why, Musk uh, got started with the SpaceX. I mean, uh, he is a, he's a a software guy, hey, the one of the most incredible people that, of course, you have in business. But why did he get to to space?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting that he went from software into space flight, and then not too long after that into electric vehicles. And I think the answer really begins with you know his unique personality. He he is very much an engineer. And so he looks at the world, sees problems, and, and wants to solve them. Um, and so I think after he'd sort of made it with PayPal in the sense that he was now sort of well off and and sort of, you know, could do the things that he wanted to do, he started to look around. Um, and one of the things that had bothered him was the fact that, you know, we were a, a species that lived on a single planet. And so if something really went bad here with a plague, some kind of environmental catastrophe, an asteroid we were pretty screwed. And so he thought that we ought to have a backup plan. We ought to, you know, we ought to become a spacefaring species. And I think part of it too was, you know, he reads a lot of science fiction and is inspired by the idea of, of civilizations that span multiple worlds, multiple stars, right? Um, and so, you know, he saw that NASA really wasn't working to bring about that future. Like they were very much sort of doing what they had done for decades, and that was not involving getting more people into space, going more places, and, and really sort of becoming a, a space-faring species.
0: Yeah, and, so, and they, yep, sorry, go
1: on. I was just, go, I was just going to say sort of, I think it was that big idea that got him thinking about how he might affect some change in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, of course uh, there is uh, an, uh, an interesting
0: fact that uh, you recount in the in the book that uh, actually in the beginning uh, uh, Musk thought that uh, probably with more budget in the uh, you know in, the, in, in, in in for NASA this would have helped them to actually speed up the process of going again in the, in space, but actually figured that uh, this was not the case. It was not a matter of actually budget. It was something else. I mean, what, what were some of the discoveries in the early days? For Musk, that actually led him to say, "Okay, uh, now uh, it's not just me getting involved in understanding whether uh, the industry can get more budget. It's me getting involved personally with my ma- with my money to actually get these off the ground."
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, from the outset, he thought that if NASA could get more money, then they could accomplish more things in space, like sending people to Mars. Um, and as he did a little more research he realized that wasn't the case. First of all, NASA didn't have a humans to Mars program anywhere on his books. And second of all, you know, he looked at the launch technology that this country was using that NASA was using at the time. And these were basically rockets based on decades old technology. It cost an enormous amount of money. Um, And it it just, you know, as as he told me in the book, you know, these horses in the barn were lame that NASA was trying to use to to do these programs. And so he just saw sort of an industry, a launch industry in particular, that was sort of stuck in place. Like like the world around him was changing, right? This was the early 2000s, the internet revolution was at hand. You know, he had with PayPal, he had helped to bring about change, you know, moving the banking industry online, um, medical records. I mean, all of these things were happening with the internet, um, but, but the space industry was basically sort of not changing at all. Um, and, And he looked at this and said, okay, what is the biggest constraint to, you know, getting a civilization on Mars and, and the big, and what came, what he realized pretty quickly is that it costs way too much to launch people and payloads and things into space. Um, and so that became his first goal: was to develop some kind of reusable space transportation system. Yeah, and um, of course, uh, uh, coming out from
0: uh, from uh, the, the the PayPal acquisition, and uh, you know, realizing that uh, in order for uh, for uh, actually being able to change the the, the space exploration industry, Musk needed to get involved personally. Uh, he actually started with uh, with a hundred million investment, which might seem a lot. In some cases, in the software industry, but it was not uh, that much, in the you know in the space uh, industry. How did he manage? Uh, actually, how did he think in the in the first uh, early days to handle uh, such a project with this uh,
1: amount of money? Right. So he looked at the existing launch industry and thought that it was really pretty inefficient, um, and so he came in with the idea of what is the, how can we do this for the least amount of money possible? And that was kind of the questions he asked his earliest employees. You know, he asked Tom Muller, you know, if you could build a, you know, a powerful rocket engine, what's the least amount of money you could do it for? And he asked Hans Konigsmann, who was going to do his avionics and software, you know, could you you build a flight computer from off-the-shelf hardware, you know, with 10 or 20 people instead of 100 or 1,000 people? um and sort of these were the challenges that he set about you know it's like let's let's cut the bone and let's 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 cut this back to the bone and and sort of see see you know let's do things as efficiently and as ruthlessly as possible in terms of cost and and the other big thing that he did is he tried to build as much of the rocket in-house like they tried to build the engines and the structures and and all this stuff in their own factory and this may seem what's the big deal about that but it really was a big deal like like 20 years ago, if you were going to build a new rocket in the United States, you would go buy your engines from, from Aerojet, you would buy your structures from someone else, and you would buy you know, your payload fairing from RUAG, and, and, and you would sort of just assemble the rocket. And so his idea was, no, 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 we're going to see if we can eliminate as many suppliers as possible and do this in-house.
0: Yeah, so it was definitely this sort of, uh, as you explained, a vertical integration or that uh, helped uh, um, SpaceX uh, uh, make this uh, objective possible. And initially, uh, as you also explained, it was more a matter of um, uh, like, it it wasn't just, uh, you know, innovating the product. It was more uh, lowering down the cost in an industry that instead was you know, I hadn't uh, been able to do it in the in the last uh, decades, so it was a little bit stuck also in bureaucracy and politics. Of course, because we can imagine that if a program that was financed by NASA in the public space was failing, then of course failure uh, was a big deal. Instead, uh, when SpaceX came along, it brought uh, a different kind of approach. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Like, uh, what what sort of uh, uh, let's say, management style, head but also what sort of uh,
1: mindset SpaceX used to to actually uh, get going in the early days? So a, a couple of things on that, I would say, first of all, one advantage that SpaceX had was that it was building the rocket it wanted to build. So typically, the way things had been done before was NASA, or the Department of Defense, would decide it needed X amount of capability. And then it would, it would, It would tell industry what design it wanted, what specifications, and then it would work very closely with industry, you know, engineer to engineer to sort of get that rocket built. And it was a costly, time-consuming process because you have to go back and forth, there'd be changes, blah, 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 and all this government oversight. What SpaceX said is, okay, no one is going to pay us to build this rocket. Like, we're not getting a government contract to develop the Falcon 1, but... That means we get to do it our own way. We get to build the rocket we want. If we're going along and we find something doesn't work, you know, we can scrap it immediately and and move to a new design or or change this part or that part. And that allowed them to go much more quickly, much more leanly and, and sort of without the bureaucracy that goes along with working with the government. So that was one important thing. Now, that meant they were taking a financial risk. If they couldn't find customers to fly on the Falcon 1 rocket, then they were going to lose a lot of money because... You know, the development cost was more than $100 million. Um, you know, the other thing you know, the other thing they did is they had a few senior managers, like people who had experience. And so, you know, Musk was in his, um, Musk was about 30 years old when he started SpaceX and he hired a few people in their 30s who had experience in industry. And then the majority of employees were, were you know, people who were in graduate school or, or just graduated from undergraduate engineers, basically who were 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, who could work long hours, were willing to work long hours. Um, And and so he went out to try to find the best and brightest students he could um, to to build his rocket.
0: Yeah, and those are uh, extremely important points. So as you said, first of all, uh, SpaceX, changed uh, the, the, the the whole industry by saying, OK, we're not going to develop uh, those uh, rockets according to your specifics. We're actually selling you, uh, the, let's say, an outcome, which is the, the launches that you're going to need in the future. But we're gonna do it uh, in in uh, in, our, uh, in uh, the way we want to do it. So this uh, freed uh, a lot of uh, gave them a lot of uh, um, uh, you know freedom in terms of uh, uh, development, design, and everything else. So they could really figure out how to uh, make uh, this possible at a much lower cost. And another key point, as you as you said, as as you mentioned, is that uh, yeah, uh, SpaceX uh, at that point uh, really figured. Uh, how to uh, make sure that he could lower the cost by also hiring talent, uh, talented people. But some of them were young people, of course. But some of them were also experienced people. So how did Musk actually manage to attract uh, people that actually were coming from the industry but from other established companies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because you know here was a guy, Elon Musk, who had no experience in rockets. And was coming into this industry with talking a big game, right, of of lowering the cost of of putting stuff into space and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this had happened before, like people with money had, you know, had come into California and, and tried this very same thing, and they all had failed. And so how did he manage to attract some really talented people like Tom Muller to do engines and Tim Buzza to do his launch sites and Chris Thompson for structures and Gwen Shotwell to do sales. Um, and the answer to that is, is Musk is really a pretty charismatic person. And so he, you know, when you talk to him, you can see that he's very committed to an idea. And so he had this mix of, of money, right? He was willing to put $100 million on the table and the early, some of the early employees got a lot of stock and a lot of, you know, they, they got some guaranteed money up front. Um, but, you know, he also had a pretty compelling vision and was able to sell them on it um, and and was there working just as hard as they were. So, you know, he was, They they could see pretty quickly that he was in the game too, right? He was not just sort of, coming in, giving an inspirational speech, and then jetting off to, to you know, Tahiti for three weeks. He was there with them in the trenches.
0: Yeah. And um, there is a, an important thing to, to, to emphasize a little bit, which is, uh, as you explained, uh, SpaceX changed the, the whole approach of developing uh, you know, rockets by uh, Using a sort of a iterative approach, what of course in the startup world is a, is known as also a lean methodology, whatever we want to call it. But the main point is uh, they managed to um, to use a, a you know a, a different uh, approach from the, the the linear approach that is used in the um, you know in the in the industry. But uh, also, uh, this is not uh, intuitive because uh, in an industry where hardware is, is extremely important, failing is not cheap. Actually, quite the opposite; it's uh, pretty expensive. And indeed, as you explain also in the book, as they went to uh, they went through the process of figuring out how to make a, a successful launch, uh, a few things also of this iterative approach um, made them fail. <laughs> Uh, in a, in a pretty miserable way so it was not like all uh, you know this beautiful thing where you apply the iterative approach and uh, things work out can you tell us a little,
1: more, a little more about that right so the way that rockets and spacecraft are typically designed is you know some engineers will sit around and come up with a perfect design of the rocket and then other engineers will review it and they'll sort of go through this big long preliminary design review and then they'll go through other designs and then they'll start building the rocket right and they may they may, may build a test version first or they may not um, but but then they spend years sort of crafting this perfect vehicle the, 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 the archetypal example of this is the Space Launch System which NASA started awarding contracts on back in 2011 um, and they've start, they've been building this single first SLS rocket since about 2014 and and now it, it may launch later this year finally for the first time and they've had to go really slow with it because if they drop it or something and break it there's not like a second SLS rocket right behind it right this is the final design and it's got to work first because there's only one and it's going to take two or three more years to build a second one okay that is the that is quintessential linear design um spacex has taken a much more iterative iterative design approach. And and that basically means that you build things pretty quickly early on in the design process because you want to test them out. And if they fail, then that's okay because then you just, you come up with a better design, test it out and and try it again. Um, And so you have to be able to willing, you have to be willing to accept failure. That means components growing up rockets, not succeeding on the first time out to get, to the final product. But then you typically get there faster and you get there with a better design because it's sort of been failure tested in a lot of different ways. Um, and that's iterative design. And that's something that SpaceX can do with those p- privately funded projects because it's their money, they can get away with it. And if it fails, you know, as long as Elon <laughs> doesn't get too upset, it's okay, right? <clears throat> Whereas if the Space Launch System fails on its first launch later this year, then the world is going to be watching and Congress is going to be saying brightly, I think, you know, we spent $25 billion on this rocket. Why, why did it blow up? You know? Um, And so that's, that's really the key difference. And you see that, you see that, frankly, with the Starship project, it's like Elon Musk now has all of the money he could hope to have. And so we're seeing like his optimal design for building a rocket, which is building like 20 Starship prototypes, you know, You know, there's there's half a dozen rocket booster prototypes in South Texas, and like some of them are going to fly, some of them aren't, but they've learned a lot building these. And so it's like it's like the iterative design process gone mad to the point where SpaceX could build a rocket in about in a matter of weeks, whereas, you know, NASA's taking taken five to six years to build this first rocket. Mm
0: -hmm. It's uh, it's a huge uh, difference. And um, there is an interesting, uh, you know, uh, statement uh, attributed to uh, Mark Andreessen, who is a venture capitalist uh, that in uh, 2011 said, uh, you know, software is eating the world. And now it seems to me that uh, SpaceX is is bringing this to space. So really, software is going to be eating uh, space as well, because uh, uh, pretty much... um, it's very important to stress out that this iterative approach uh, is also translating in software that controls uh, hardware at, at distance. So meaning uh, just like, uh, which is the same approach that uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, also Tesla uses. Uh, because when you have a, a, a car like Tesla, a lot of it is hardware, but when you have a software update, you can actually control various parts of the car. So you, you can make the car a different, um, like a no, not a whole new different vehicle, but you can improve the product a lot uh, just with the with the software update, and the same applies back to to uh, I guess to rockets, and this is uh, extremely uh, important. And uh, so, um, how, uh, w- w- what were some of the key events initially, that uh, uh, you know gave uh, uh, the company. Uh, the the impression that things uh, could actually work out and what, what were
1: also some of the initial failures yeah just to just to sort of finish up the point you were making yeah. about software first of all um, I think that this kind of focus on iterative design actually we can trace it to Musk's roots in writing software because the basic idea is you know you write a program you run it you find the errors, you debug the program and you run it again. And basically you keep doing that until the program works. Um, and, and and that's I think the same kind of mindset he brought to to building rockets. And that really was a pretty innovative approach um, in the private sector. Um, so so anyway in the aerospace industry. Yeah. Anyway, sort of, you know, going back and, and saying what were some some of the signs that they were on the right track. Yeah. You know, I think really they're their one of their biggest successes was their first first time they static fired the Falcon One rocket. So this means that they you know the rocket was held down on the test stand, but they sort of lit the engine for about twenty seconds to simulate a launch, and this was in May of, of two thousand five. So just three years after the company was founded, and they sort of were on a t- on the test site in Vandenberg. Uh, Air Force Base in California, and they, you know, they they ignited the rocket, and lo and behold, they were ready to launch, um, mm-hmm. or getting there. And, and that was really a successful moment. And up until that point, I'm not sure that the Air Force officials in California realized how close SpaceX was to being ready, because SpaceX had a had a had a green light to launch from there. And then basically, after that static fire, you know, the, the Air Force officials said, oh, you can launch, but you've got to wait for this other rocket over here on the next pad over to launch, and that may not be for six or eight months. And so so they, that was one of the reasons why SpaceX ended up not launching California had to go to and in, in the Pacific Ocean. So that was like a success and then a, a setback right after that.
0: Yeah. And um, yeah, another important point probably to to uh, emphasize a little bit as we move forward, um It's not like SpaceX was the first to to try this out, to to try to commercialize the the space uh, industry. Actually, there were other companies throughout the 80s and the 90s that uh, Tried to figure this out, but they actually were uh, not uh, successful. So even when we look at the perspective on the other side, so from uh, from let's say from the Air Force or the NASA side, uh, they were skeptical. They were right in being skeptical because they'd seen this uh, uh, this uh, play before. But um, uh, you know uh, what was uh, um, that uh, really made uh, uh, SpaceX instead? successful in its attempt. And uh, there is also, I think, a change in uh, on the other side. So let's say on the NASA side uh, um, toward uh, SpaceX uh, by going from, you know, we don't trust, uh, n- not we don't trust, but, you know, we, we don't trust that a commercial player can make it to, you know, commercial players can actually make it through.
1: Right, so so one of the reasons I think why you have to look at SpaceX's SpaceX's success is is because of you know Elon himself. I think, I think Tom Mueller, who was the vice president of propulsion, he basically developed the Merlin rocket engine, which was the foundation of success for the Falcon One, Falcon Nine, and Falcon Heavy rockets. You know, he said he had seen a lot of entrepreneurs come along with good ideas about launch companies, and he'd seen entrepreneurs come along with lots of money and wanted to start rocket companies, but he felt Elon was the first one to come along who had both the right combination of money and good ideas. And what do I mean by good ideas? Good idea being basically like, what is a realistic first attempt for for a rocket rocket like if you were going to build a product as a launch company, what, what's, where's a good place to start and what's a good design for it? And I think Tom felt that you know, Elon's idea of, of building a rocket that could lift about half a metric ton to low Earth orbit, pretty simple design in that it's liquid-fueled engine, first stage, one smaller engine, upper stage, um, and, and sort of demonstrating that you could get to orbit with that was a pretty good concept. And so you know, Elon started with a pretty basic idea um, and, and told his team to go execute on that, um, and so I think that that they weren't trying to get too crazy right off the bat. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I think this is uh, a uh, very important point because uh, when we uh, when we hear from uh, uh, you know stories from Elon Musk, uh, uh, we tend to look at uh, those stories and the fact that uh, he has such a grandiose vision as something that uh, cannot be achieved, but it's very important to highlight that the vision that he has, it's very practical. So it's not like a vision that uh, uh, cannot be, uh, let's say, it's it's a vision with an objective. So uh, as you explain as well, he wakes up every day trying to understand how you can uh, lower the cost even more so that in the long term, you can reach the the, the target to uh, going to Mars. So it's a grand, a grandest vision, but in the short term, uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, practical uh, objective, uh, based on objectives, which is extremely important. That's what makes
1: uh, really SpaceX, I think, uh, successful as well. And that's, yeah, that, that's a great point. I, and I think I think what I would want to say there is that, you know, from the outside, it may look like madness, but there is a method to the madness, right? It's so like the first step, as we talked about was, okay, you want to be a rocket company, put a rocket in orbit. And so that's what they did with the Falcon one. And then, okay, you want to be a real rocket company, build a medium lift rocket that can lift, you know, can carry stuff to the international space station. That's what the Falcon nine is. And then, then you sort of get to get into Elon's vision, which is Okay to really go to mars we need to make spaceflight a lot cheaper and that's where the reusability part comes in and that's why the you know that's where their success with the falcon 9 rocket you know flying at 10 and 11, 11 times now the first stage is really is impressive because that is actually delivering on that vision that was like the next step right okay falcon 1 falcon 9 okay now demonstrate reusability with the falcon 9 wow they they demonstrated that so now the next step is to build a much larger launch set system, and take all of those lessons you learned from the Falcon 9, put them into Starship, and then that is your actual Mars transportation vehicle.
0: Yeah, and it's a uh, it's this point. Uh... It's very important because again, he has a grandiose vision, but he's an entrepreneur is very practical. And the same approach has been used also in the uh, for, for Tesla in the early years. So he, has, he had always uh, ex, uh, explained the vision of uh, transitioning the whole world to electric cars. But then when it started, actually Tesla was uh, targeting a very small niche of a, a subset of the sports car uh, industry where uh, Tesla was going to show off uh, how uh, an electric uh, vehicle could actually uh, have a, uh, um, you know, a great performance. And uh, that's how it started with a few models to show how the, the roadster, so this sports car, can, could actually be used as a way to showcase the technology and move from there. So uh, it's interesting also to notice, notice that, uh, again, grandiose vision coupled with uh, a lot of um, uh, entrepreneurship and uh, practical approach on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and you you mentioned also a very important point, which is uh, the fact that uh, making rockets reusable uh, changed the whole industry and the whole business model of of uh, the, the space industry. Um, can you you know tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think these are very important. Yeah, I
1: mean, you know, even the idea of landing a rocket on a on a you know on the ground or on a on a ship, bringing it into the, you know, back to the factory, refurbishing it and launching it again, even in, in 2015, 2016, you know, that seemed like a really out there idea. Like it seemed something like you would talk about it in a science fiction standpoint, but that you probably wouldn't see a private company doing. And I distinctly remember in like 2017, Elon having, A press conference or a press call where he where he started talking about a flight proven rocket and basically saying that if you're a person or a customer, you really want to fly on the second, third, or fourth flight of a rocket. You don't really want to be on the first flight. You want to be uh, on a flight proven version. And man, I have to say, at the time, that just sounded like a marketing gimmick, Um, and and everyone just kind of laughed at that, like because you know, no way, whatever, right? You know, he's just trying to you know make these rockets seem safer than they are but now you know in the last year or two you know you've seen the most valuable missions you know that this country has like like the, the nasa astronauts are now flying on the second and the third and you know probably the fourth flights of a falcon 9 first stage and and the department of defense is putting gps satellites you have commercial customers flying on the seventh or eighth flight of a falcon 9 rocket and so it's it's really he's really turned it on its head um, and, and, and shown that, yeah, actually flight proven is a thing. Um, And so the industry has really had to grapple with this. Like, like there's a very rapidly changing mindset in just the last two or three years that basically if the rocket you're designing now is not reusable, you might as well not be building it because that is so very clearly The future, the companies and the space agencies that aren't building, you know, reusable rockets are are basically almost being mocked, right? Because it looks anachronistic, Um, and and it's it's continued even with Starship because you know with Starship he's trying to do something that's never been done before, which is build a fully reusable rocket, which means not just the first stage comes back, but the second stage comes back and it all gets you know reused, flown quickly, and you've seen. You know, Relativity is looking to build a fully reusable Terran R vehicle. Um, Blue Origin is is going to be trying to make the entirety of its new Glenn rocket reusable. And so this is not just a trend, it's it's the future now.
0: Yeah, yeah, this uh, is a a key point, because uh, from uh, being mocked, actually, uh, SpaceX, uh, um, you know, a few years back, uh, most people didn't think, also in the industry, that making... Uh, Reusable rocket, uh, uh, you know, was possible, probably made sense, and now this has become a standard. So if you're not doing it, then uh, you're actually being uh, mocked. So this uh, this is very interesting, and uh, of course there is also another point where um, where uh, you know SpaceX spent a, a lot of resources in developing the Falcon One, but then it had to actually pivot to to uh, the Falcon Nine. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, how they uh, threw uh, threw away. A few years of work because they understood that the opportunity was
1: now in another place right so so elon musk is not a particularly sentimental um individual um and so you know the company had put blood sweat and tears into making the falcon one rocket a success and, and really um, the focus of my book is on all of those early failures they failed the first three launches um of the Falcon one and, and really with everything on the line with the fourth launch, they ultimately did succeed. And that, that set the company up basically, you know, on the glide path that it's been since then. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's the Falcon nine was, was just a much more capable rocket. Like, like with the Falcon one, you know, and a half ton, you're kind of limited and, and Musk realized, that if he built a larger rocket, he could launch all of those other things he had contracts for with the Falcon One. But he could also, you know, serve many other customers with the Falcon Nine, and most importantly, NASA, which you know was bidding out contracts to deliver cargo and astronauts to the International Space Station. You just couldn't do that with the Falcon One, and so he basically decided, okay, great job demonstrating that the Falcon One works, but we're going to be all in on the Falcon Nine. Yeah, and. Uh- uh, as of now, uh,
0: m- most probably SpaceX has uh, grabbed most of the the also the commercial satellite uh, launch uh, launch business. And this is another very interesting point because uh, uh, there is uh, another part, another project, which is a Starlink that uh, has become also a very important revenue generator for for the company. So uh, I admire this strategy where you use something like Starlink to generate money on top of an existing industry that exists here on Earth, which is the communication industry, uh, where actually you're going to be using that same technology, I guess, to power up also a connection uh, in space. Uh, And so this, to me, it's a very smart approach that also explains uh, how uh, SpaceX has been able, compared to others, to to compete in this industry. And uh, did it change as a scale? I mean, uh, uh, now SpaceX is a huge
1: company, I guess it's the main player. So did it change over time? Yeah, absolutely. SpaceX from the time of the Falcon 1 was basically David. um, And now in the aerospace industry, it's Goliath Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the way it it delivers. I I wanna come back a little bit to the, the comment you made about Starlink. Um, being a smart, you know, a smart play, we're going to see if that's the case over the next couple of years, because building a low earth orbit broadband network is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and so they're putting a lot of money into that. And, you know, it, time is going to tell whether or not they're ultimately successful um, with that. Um, they, they've got a long way to go. And they're putting a lot of capital into that. Um, and so it's, it's a big gamble. But really, you know, Musk Gold legitimately is, you know, developing a program to settle Mars. And the US government isn't going to pay for that. NASA's not going to pay for that. And and you know, people aren't going to pay for that. And so it's really it's going to have to come off the revenues from Starlink.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Already, well, so
0: let's uh, let's close this up. I know our time is uh, is almost due. So uh, let's close this up. Uh, uh, you know about uh, uh, the the timing to to Mars. What do you think? I mean, uh, how long uh, it might take for uh, for us to see SpaceX being able to actually uh, bring bring us to Mars.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so I'm forty eight years old, and if SpaceX denies this, I have almost no faith in NASA or any of the other international space agencies to bring about a humans to Mars program in my lifetime. It's just, it's it's too expensive. It's, it's too much risk in, in terms of human life. And there's just no real geopolitical reason for a government to make that kind of investment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's just for lots of reasons it's difficult to see that happening but but now SpaceX comes along and that's like the, the raison d'etre the, the reason why SpaceX exists is to put humans on Mars. Um, and again, it seemed preposterous when Elon was talking about it at the beginning of SpaceX but as we talked about he's taken this methodical step by step approach to making it happen. So. It is It is possible this happens in my lifetime. Um, I think it'll be some kind of cooperation between NASA and SpaceX. SpaceX clearly is building the transportation system to make humans to Mars possible. Starship is, is large, it's rapid, it's designed to be rapidly re- be reusable, and is the kind of rocket you would need to, you know, start setting up a settlement on the surface of Mars. Um, And that was the key first step. Like NASA had done studies of humans to Mars for decades. But until you actually have the transportation system, the rocket and the spacecraft, it's it's just an academic exercise. Well, SpaceX is taking that first step. And so once they demonstrate Starship, I think then you could see a program with them working with NASA, sort of for the first couple of missions to be like professional astronauts to Mars, Mm -hmm. and then SpaceX getting going with its private missions where actually, no, they start you know, developing a settlement on the surface of Mars. And, you know, you asked for a timeline, you know, I just can't see that happening this decade. I think if it happens anytime before like 2035, that would be an amazing achievement. So, you know, I'd love to see something happen in the 2030s with humans to Mars. Yeah, and uh, to close this up, how is the competition
0: in the space industry and in the commercial space industry? Is there any a competition between SpaceX uh, and Blue Origin, Re- which is the company financed by, by Bezos, or uh, there is no play between the two?
1: SpaceX definitely has competition, um, but it it has really, in terms of the traditional launch industry, blown past competition now what i mean by that is you know for a long time united launch alliance which is co-owned by boeing and lockheed martin the two largest defense contractors in, in the united states united launch alliance was the competition like like they were the america's dominant launch company but you know last year spacex launched five rockets in the month of december and in all of the year 2021, United Launch Alliance launched five rockets. So that tells you about all you need to know about where that competition is today. And and frankly, SpaceX is pulling away from United Launch Alliance, especially if and when it gets the Starship vehicle up and running. And so then the question becomes, are there other new space companies that could challenge SpaceX? And you brought up blue origin. And I still think despite sort of some of their stumbles that Blue Origin does offer the best competition because Bezos, Jeff Bezos, you know, has billions of dollars to invest in space and is investing that money and does have a big vision. Um, And they see the New Glenn vehicle, um, the large rocket they're building as a viable competitor to Starship. And I've seen enough plans for that rocket. If it does become fully reusable, then it could become you know, a viable competitor in some sense to Starship, um, but but SpaceX is really about a decade ahead of, of every other rocket company in the United States right now, or or in the world. So it's it's in terms of launch, you know, there's a big gap. And it would be one thing if like SpaceX was resting on its laurels, right, or or just sort of standing pat. But but they're they're sort of charging boldly into the future. And you know, you look at you know you look at the European Space Agency, and they're now talking about a rocket that looks something like the Falcon 9. Right. And and maybe developed in five or seven years from now. Well, by that time, the Falcon 9 will be two decades old. And there's lots of startups in China that are looking at developing rockets that look a lot like the Falcon 9, like a lot with grid fins, landing legs, all this stuff. But again, you know, if they get flying in 70 years old, they're going to be five to seven years, they'll be 15 to 20 years behind the Falcon 9. And so again, SpaceX just has a really large lead right now. Yeah. Interesting, and uh,
0: uh, Eric, uh, let's close this up. I know that uh, our time is almost due. The book, it's uh, incredible. I hope that uh, uh, it might turn hopefully into a movie because the story of the first failures going forward, how they managed to succeed uh, and still how they managed to, to uh, become uh, one of the, the main players in the in this industry and bring the, the, the commercial uh, space uh, industry uh, forward. It's, uh, it's uh, so incredible. So thanks uh, for uh, taking the time to join this conversation.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope I've been helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Before we get to the end of the show, let me recap uh, a few of the key points that we touched throughout this conversation. First of all, how Musk actually got to uh, create SpaceX in the first place. Let's remember a little bit of the context back in the early 2000s. As Musk actually uh, was hosted uh, from uh, from PayPal around the year 2000, and uh, as he started to develop uh, this vision to uh, make humanity go to Mars, and let's remember, you know, Musk has been always passionate about the, the space exploration Um, especially as a kid he read a lot of uh, sci-fi books and uh, you know as he had more time to think about it and as he was not involved anymore in the day-to-day operations of PayPal, actually uh, there was a moment in time where this vision would be probably possible and this year is 2002 when finally PayPal gets sold to eBay for 1.5 billion and this gives Musk more than 100 million in personal worth that he could invest in his uh, next venture. It's very important to highlight that in the early uh, days, actually Musk uh, thought that by giving more budget to NASA, it was possible to actually again give a boost to the space exploration uh, missions that were stuck since the 70s. Although he soon realized that this was not the case. And so he started to think about a personal involvement into this venture. He started to look in different ways to actually uh, get involved and he started to look at ways to actually build out the rocket he uh, looked into various options and uh, one of the first options that he looked at initially in the early days was also to buy parts of the rocket uh, from uh, from Russia but actually his uh, funny story is uh, it was not taken seriously so much so that uh, Russians were actually changing the pricing of uh, the the, uh, rocket uh, parts uh, you know from time to from time to time. So Elon Musk uh, realized that uh, if uh, he was going to actually uh, rely on their supply, uh, things would have not worked out. And therefore he said to build his own rockets. He did that through a vertical integrated approach or if you want, a, a craftsmanship approach where uh, he was going to build everything internally so that he could have control on the cost that it took to actually build the rocket and everything else. So all the parts and all the materials that went into building out the the rocket. As he started with an initial investment of uh, of 100 million dollars, this was a small uh, thing in the space travel industry, where this sort of capital uh, was uh, an initial capital to develop something, but was not that much. And, you know, Musk knew in the early days that he had a very few chances of failures before the business uh, would become viable in the first place, as it needed to rely also on uh, contracts from uh, governments. Therefore, what Musk did uh, was to have a very practical approach. Although since the early days he had the, the vision, the grandiose vision to go to Mars, this vision though was also coupled with a very practical approach on a day-to-day basis where he would push his own uh, people to actually understand uh, how to lower the cost of of, uh, producing or building out a viable rocket. And so that's how the path and journey of SpaceX began. So the whole journey of, uh, let's say, the uh, first phase of of SpaceX was really to understand how to build a rocket in a much cheaper way compared to existing players. Because Musk knew that actually if uh, he was going to build something much cheaper, he would have changed the whole industry for good. And there was another uh, key uh, element of what actually, um, you know, uh, Musk and SpaceX did to change the the whole industry. Uh, You know, SpaceX understood that in order for it to make the industry more competitive, something that had not been for decades since the industry was stuck in bureaucracy and politics uh, actually was to sell also to commercial clients therefore to open up also to the private market and another key point is that rather than you know just relying on the government for specifics around how rockets out to be built Instead, SpaceX sold out launches, meaning that you know SpaceX uh, was going to the government saying, okay, you want us to do uh, uh, this number of launches in the next, let's say, five years. Uh, Okay, we do that, but we take care of the design of the rockets. Indeed, we have complete freedom on that since this is our enterprise this might seem uh, and sound trivial yet it was a critical element because this enabled spacex to change the whole approach to uh, building and developing uh, you know rockets so from a linear approach that was the the usual approach used in the space industry to an iterative approach if you wish a lean startup approach where the company could fail fast uh, iterate on that and try to build something valuable at a much lower cost, which is the whole purpose of a a lean uh, startup uh, methodology and approach. Now, this might sound trivial, yet uh, it's not, because actually when you're operating in a heavy um, hardware you know, industry like uh, the rocket industry. You know that each uh, failure is not going to be cheap; it's going to be quite expensive. So, uh, bringing this approach to the space industry has not been something uh, intuitive. Actually, quite the opposite. Also, there is another key point. Uh, back in the year two thousand eleven, uh, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen said, "Software is it in the the world." And now I think there is another important point from the 2020 going forward. that SpaceX has become now the dominant player in the in the space industry, we know that software is also eating space. Why? Well, because while hardware plays a key role, and uh, now the uh, rockets that uh, SpaceX has built over the years have become, you know, uh, massive rockets that can, uh, can travel uh, toward uh, space, it is also true that once you go to space, there is no way for you to control the hardware if not by using software. So similarly to how Tesla actually uses software to upgrade its own hardware, similarly to what you do actually with your iPhone. Uh, Actually, uh, SpaceX does the same in the space industry. So, the key innovation was this software approach to an industry that was stuck since a few decades. In other words, uh, SpaceX uh, changed the whole business models of rockets and space travel, uh, the space travel industry. So, this is another key point. So, where other uh, players had always, um, you know, let's say, uh, used an approach where rockets would be uh, wasted once they were launched. Instead, SpaceX, uh, from uh, since the early days, had been looking for a way to building reusable rockets. So rockets that could be reused many times over. And while this idea now has become a standard now in 2022, it was actually not a standard initially and actually uh, SpaceX was mocked uh, for looking into this approach. Yet, for Musk, this was very important to do, because if you could make a rocket reusable, then you could change the lo- the whole industry all of, all of a sudden, because you could lower uh, a lot the cost of each launch, thus making possible Uh, actually to expand the commercial market for uh, space travel. And let's remember that that, this is what uh, SpaceX has done. So SpaceX has opened up the whole market for space travel, not just to... Uh, government uh, players but actually it has uh, opened this up to a prior a private and commercial players and while we are still in the early days because uh, you know also for commercial players uh, launch it's uh, still expensive we are also going forward to a scenario where uh, space travel might become much much cheaper and the more uh, those rockets are reusable the more is going to be cheaper uh, to do that as a great example of Musk, that Musk does often is um, imagine if you were to throw away your uh, the, the engine of your car each time that you were to drive a car imagine how much expensive you would be your car today so what makes your car today not that expensive is the fact that actually the engine is used over and over again for a long period of time there is another key point from this story uh, spacex had uh, actually spent years in developing the falcon 1 uh, which was her first attempt to make sure that it could build a a viable rocket and then it suddenly after six years of development pivoted to the uh, falcon 9 as spacex understood that this was the space where it needed to be and where it secured you know, the contracts to actually keep going forward, that's where uh, SpaceX uh, focused. And that's also what gave SpaceX the ability to build uh, wider, uh, you know, larger and larger rockets. It's very important to highlight now that SpaceX is a giant in the space travel industry. It's one of the main, if not the main, player. It grabbed actually two-thirds of the commercial satellite launch business. And in the meantime, it launched another, uh, what we can consider for now, a uh, side uh, you know, project, which is a Starlink that uh, sends out uh, you know, satellites um, in, uh, in, uh, in space for internet connection the, that is tapping actually uh, into the communication industry. And uh, it's a multi-million per month revenue stream. Indeed, just on February 14th, 2022, Elon Musk tweeted that over 250,000 Starlink user terminals are around. And this is an extremely important point because Starlink is going to be important also for a space travel communication so again another key point uh, this is not uh, you know uh, this is another huge bet that uh, spacex placed as also eric helped us understand so it was not cheap to build uh, to actually develop a project like starlink it's uh, it was a huge bet but it seems that for now this huge bet is starting to pay off, gen- uh, pay off generating a multi-million per month revenue stream for the company uh, on top of an existing market which is the communication industry. Now, uh, going forward, it seems that there is not much game for now between SpaceX and other players like Blue Origin, which is the company uh, owned by Jeff Bezos. Although we can argue that over time other players will be able to keep up with the pace of SpaceX, for now there is no game. And actually, Eric Berger helped us understand that the real competition might come from actually China and uh, the real question here is whether we're going to be able to get to Mars in our lifetime and We know that for a fact Musk is going to push uh, through that and to that uh, as uh, he is going to be still alive. So we can imagine in the next like 20 years he's going to attempt to do it. But whether or not he's going to make it, uh, actually it's very interesting how we changed the whole paradigm in uh, in one generation. So how we thought it was impossible to do something like that to, to how we think now it's actually possible again.